Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 7 this morning, just to follow up uh, on our love offerings that we're taking. If you want to give a check or some money to Brother Legit or to our treasurer, that's absolutely fine. Just earmark it as love offering for uh, food portions. On Wednesday night, we'll have the offering basket on the back usher's table. You can drop it in there as well. And then next Sunday, you know, we'll take another offering. Just all the different opportunities that are available for you uh, as, the, as you purpose in your heart and as the Lord leads you. And so if you'd like to do it that way, a different way, then that's totally fine as well. Also, uh, just be in prayer today for Brother Humphrey's family. Uh, most of you heard, I'm sure, that his brother had a major stroke and is under sedation now. Not a lot of information beyond that as far as the extent of damage, things like that. And those maybe that information will be coming uh, as it transpires. But just pray for the family, okay? And then for God's grace for them, uh, extended and immediate family, okay? All right, would you do that, please? Also, would you pray for me as well? Um, tomorrow, I have a meeting, and I need the Lord, I need God's grace, need wisdom in it all, and just ask that you'd uh, pray for me as well, uh, just to uh, be led of the Lord in the things that, are, that I say and do, all right? And I just need you to be aware, and I need you to, to pray for me, okay? Okay, good. Luke chapter 7. I want you to look in verse 1 with me. We'll also turn over to Matthew 8 in just a little while. Uh, but in Luke chapter 7, in verse 1, the Bible says, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loved our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto them, Go, and he goeth, and another come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. This account that we've just read is really a remarkable account about the grace of of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and it's also an account about the great faith of a Gentile soldier, and even an account of the common misconception of the religious people of the day. There's all of these different things that are going on, and Luke records that Jesus, as Jesus was wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount, 
the Bible says here in verse 1 that he entered into Capernaum. And we're told about a centurion man, a professional Roman officer uh, uh, who was part of the Roman army, who, who would have commanded a unit of, of at least 100 men. The Roman centurion, he probably would have been the equivalent to maybe a captain in the army today. He, he would have had, for, for his, his station, his position, he would have had a long and distinguished career in the Roman army. He was a man who had authority, who had reputation uh, to him. This man had probably been charged with keeping the peace in Capernaum as the nation of Israel was under Roman rule and Roman occupation. It would have been his job to to oversee and keep the peace in this area where it would have been the job of another Roman soldier in another place to keep the peace in that area. And so this man is probably very rooted in this community. He's very rooted in this uh, with these people. And the Bible says that these people came to Jesus and they said, he's worthy that you should do this because he's built us a synagogue. He obviously had been there for quite some time. And he had his roots in this place. He had a good relationship with the people, having been there for, for several years probably. And we're also told that he had a servant that was terminally ill. But the Bible says that this servant was very special to him. And so he was sick and he was about ready to die. And if he's special unto him, naturally he wants him to live. And so he sends a delegation to Jesus to ask for help. And I'm going to preach this morning out of this passage concerning the faith of this centurion. And we're going to make some parallels and some applications for you and me this morning, especially when it comes to having faith in Jesus Christ. And it'll, it'll primarily be a salvation message this morning. If you're here today and you know the Lord and you're saved, there's definitely going to be some application for you as well that you can rejoice in what the Lord has done for you. But I want to challenge each of us to take God's Word this morning soberly, seriously. Uh, it's the Word of truth. It's the words of life that God has given to us. And we're here today by divine appointment, not just routine and not just uh, because that's what we do. God has something for you and for me today. And so let's open God's Word with a, a, a sober heart and ask the Spirit of God to open our understanding that we might receive what God has for us today, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you'd use your Word. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would be here. And Lord, I pray for those who are here today that are without Jesus Christ, you've never been saved. Lord, would you draw them to yourself today? Lord, would you use your Word uh, to accomplish uh, your purpose, and faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And Lord, also for the saint of God, may we rejoice in Christ our Savior as we seek to exalt Him here in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to notice with me is that uh, this servant that is talked about in this passage had a great need. And there are three things I see about this servant. First of all, he was in a condition of utter helplessness. Look with me in verse 1 and 2 again. 
Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. Here we find that this servant was in a position or a condition of utter helplessness. The Bible says that he was sick and he was ready to die. We also know that the Bible tells us that he was a servant. In other words, he was a slave of this man. He was not a free man. He was not a man who could do as he pleased. There was nothing that he could do as well to make himself better. He was sick and ready to die. The Bible also says here that he was dear to this centurion, even though he was a servant or a slave. So you can imagine that this centurion would have tried to do all that he could do for his servant to try to make him well, to try to make him better. He didn't just let him lay there and die. He was dear to him, and he probably tried prior to this to do all that he could possibly do to help him get well and to survive. You can imagine that must have been the case. But it's gotten to the point where there's nothing he can do. He's sick and he's ready to die. And and what I'm saying is this servant was in a helpless condition. He couldn't help himself. His master uh, couldn't help him either. It's a terrible condition. But I'm highlighting this to draw out this truth or this application. This is a picture of every single person who's under the spirit-sickening power of sin. When we come into this world, we come into this world already in a helpless condition. We're mortals. We're sinful. We're helpless. We're sick and we're powerless in ourselves to overcome sin. We're sick with sin and enslaved by it. We cannot free ourselves. Go to John chapter 8, keep your place here. We'll look at several references in John chapter 8 and verse 34. The Bible says here, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And I'm highlighting that again because this servant was in this helpless condition and it pictures our condition, that we are sin-sick and we are helpless and we're a slave to it. We can't free ourselves from it. In Romans chapter 6, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, and we'll move through these fairly quickly here. (coughs) In verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. You're a servant to sin. You obey the sin of the flesh. Verse 19 says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. People think that they're in control of themselves out in the world. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm in control. I'm not a slave. I'm not a servant. I do what I want. Have you ever noticed how people are addicted or they can't seem to break free from the bonds of of their addictions and they, they just keep coming back and coming back or they need more and they need more? Why is that? Because we're a slave to our sin. 
and were powerless to break it. You say, oh, I can break my addictions. There was, there was a guy I knew one time. I worked with the guy. And he would chew tobacco. I don't know, maybe I've told you this story before. It always drove me nuts. It was disgusting. Like, and he'd always spit it into, his, into a, a, a transparent you know, pop container or a soda container, like a Mountain Dew bottle or something like that. And it'd always be sitting in the cup holder or sitting on the dash, and we're at work and driving around and in there, and it's like, ugh, ah, gag. And it's like, literally would dry heave gag. One day I talked to him, and I was like, you're addicted to that stuff. That stuff is gross. It's not good for you. It's going to kill you. You'll probably get lip cancer and then turn into lung cancer, and you're going to die. And I, he was my friend, so I was just messing with him like that. But I didn't hesitate to tell him it's gross and I'm like and so he's like you like so what it's something I like to do. I'm like you're addicted to it you couldn't stop it even if you wanted to and he's like yes I can I can stop chewing I don't need to stop I can, I can do it I'm like no you can't and he's like yeah I can I was like okay then do it prove it prove it that you can he's like okay I will and so he stopped chewing but you know what he did immediately started smoking same thing, buddy. You need the nicotine fix. You need the tobacco. You need whatever. You're addicted to it. That's the way we are to sin. In our natural state, we cannot break free from the bonds of our sin. We are sin or sick with sin. We're enslaved by it. We cannot free ourselves. And truly, sin is the ultimate slave master. This man, the Bible tells us, was sick and utterly helpless. That is the same condition that we are in to our sin. You may be here this morning, and you're not saved. And maybe you're thinking in your mind even now, I don't know if I agree with what that pastor say. I don't know if I agree with what the preacher say. You know, friend, you don't, you don't have to agree with me. God says we are the servants of our sin right here in His Word. Try all you want in your flesh. You cannot possibly do right. Because that's who we are in our nature. And we'll never measure up to the standard of God. We're actually in a very helpless condition. Not only that, not only was the servant in an utterly helpless condition, he was in great misery as well. If you go over to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, and it's a parallel passage regarding the same account, but we see a little bit of, we get a little bit of different insight here in Matthew chapter 8 in verse 6. And or the Bible says in verse 5, And when Jesus entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. So we find that not only was he in an utterly helpless condition, he was in a tormented condition. Uh, uh, the Bible says he was grievously tormented. He was in great misery. The servant was keenly aware of his condition as he was grievously tormented. And we're talking about really what ought to be our understanding of our condition as sinful people. 
When a person has come to the place where they realize their sinful condition, and when they come to the place where they realize how helpless they are, how sick they are in sin, you know what happens? You become grievously tormented and in great misery over your spiritual condition. Now, I'm going to say something that might be, to some of you, fairly shocking. I don't really know. But I really believe this. I believe that a person can't possibly be saved until they understand and are deeply convicted over their guilt of their sin and their offense to God. And the reason I say that is because of this. We don't know what we need to be saved from if we don't understand our offense to God and the judgment that we fall under and the condemnation that is ours in our sinful state. But when I understand that, and I understand that I can't save myself, I am grievously tormented inside that I've offended God, I'm guilty, I deserve judgment, I'm in trouble with God and I need a Savior. you got these religions, and you've got, quote, Christian churches, and you've got the, the social gospels, and you've got uh, the, the seeker-friendly churches, and you've got all these others out there who preach a one-sided gospel, and it may be not even a true gospel at all. And what they preach is, all you need is to believe in Jesus. All you need is to believe in Jesus, and you can be saved. You confess with your mouth Jesus, you'll be saved. And they never talk about the other side of the coin, why we need to be saved. Because we're, in ju we're under judgment. We're condemned before God because of our sin. We cannot save ourselves, and we're in danger. I don't know that it is... An accurate depiction and probably, like I said, probably not even a true gospel. Because it doesn't give the whole account. It doesn't deal with the sin issue. And you know, they have their invitations. Oh, if you want to receive Jesus, just look up at me. Just, just pray this prayer. You want to receive Jesus? Come on down. Like you're on the price is right. You got a group of people standing out in front. You, and, and, and you know, raise your hand or do this and, or I'll smack you on the head and you receive Jesus. People come sauntering down the aisle all like it's a party. Where's, where's the conviction over your sin? Where's the dealing with the condemnation that my soul is under before God? You understand what I'm saying? And until a person comes to the place where they know that I'm in trouble with God and I deserve God's judgment because of who I am. I am sin sick. I can't free myself and I can't stop. There's nothing I can do to save my own soul. I need a Savior. I don't know that they can truly be saved. What I'm simply saying is a person who understands their guilt is going to be in misery over their sin until... It is solved with the Lord. This centurion servant, the Bible says, was in grievously tormented. He was in great misery. Also, another thing we know about this servant is that he was in immediate danger. 
The Bible tells us back in our text in Luke chapter 7 and verse 2 that he was sick and ready to die. He was in immediate danger. He was just at the point of dying. His disease had brought him to the very brink of eternity. And all the wisdom and all the power of man, all the medical resources could do nothing to save him. He was in immediate danger. And I would say this by way of application. Friend, listen, in your unsaved condition, you are in immediate danger. And here's why. Life is uncertain. You don't know what the rest of this day is going to bring. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't even know that you have tomorrow. What about you, young man? You're 12, 13, 14 years old. You've got a lot of life ahead of you. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You're in immediate danger in your lost condition. That's the point I want to get across to you. You don't know that you have tomorrow. You can't say another day, I will deal with my sin issue. Oh, I've got time. You can't say it. And what you need to understand is that life is short. And what you also need to understand is that there are young people every single day who go out into eternity. It just happened. It just happened. Another soul just went out into eternity. Which one of these is going to be yours? You understand? In our sin-sick condition, we're in immediate danger whether you're 14 years old or whether you're 70 years old. We're not guaranteed another breath. And my point in saying that, and the Bible describes it, that our life is a vapor. It's here for a little time and then vanisheth away. Our life is like the sparks that fly upward. You see them for a second, they're gone. We could die at any moment. And I'm simply saying it should add to the misery of our sin-sick soul because when a person dies without Christ, it's settled. What you do with Jesus Christ must be done in this life because when death comes, it's too late. And when it comes to salvation, a person has to have a good understanding of their condition as sin-sick and helpless in great misery over their sin and understanding that I'm in immediate danger. That is where you need to come because then you're going to run to Christ. Go back to our text in Luke 7, and I want you to look at verse 3. So we see and notice some things about the servant but secondly, I want you to notice the centurion's petition. The centurion's petition. In verse 3, the Bible says, When he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. He made intercession for his devoted servant when he heard of Jesus, the Bible says clearly implying that he believed 
everything that he had heard about Jesus. Why else would he come to him? Why else would he come to him that you can heal him? He heard about Jesus, and it tells us that he believed what he heard about Jesus so that he believed that Jesus could be the answer. Does that make sense? He probably had heard how Jesus healed the nobleman's son. He probably had heard that miracle that happened because it was from the very same place. And he believed that he could do the same for his servant. And so he petitions the Lord that he would come and heal his servant. And in this, I also see what must be in the heart of one who desires to be free from their sin and to be saved. There needs to be a petition with the Lord. Notice that the Bible says in verse 3, He heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. His petition to the Lord was an earnest petition. He came beseeching him. Why did he come with this kind of of earnestness. There was real anxiety in his heart. He felt that strong desire for his servant to be healed, and he knew that Jesus could do it, and so he beseeches him earnestly. The word earnest means a longing of desire. It means zealous. It means eager, importunate. The word beseech means to ask with urgency. That's how he came to Jesus. And the application is simple. So must be the attitude of the heart in salvation. Lord, I understand my guilt, and I know I'm condemned before you. I deserve judgment. But Lord, I need you and want you to save my soul and take away my sin. Because I'm helpless without you. You're my only hope. When there's a coldness or a formality or a nonchalant behavior, I wonder if it's a reflection that there's no heart that is really understanding of my condition before God. No heartfelt desire over the guilt of my sin. Secondly, we note that this centurion's petition was not only earnest or beseeching, but it was humble. Notice in verse 6, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. It was a humble petition. He said, I'm not worthy. And those he sent earlier said, he is worthy. He's done all of these things for us. He's built us a synagogue. But that was not his own heart attitude. His own heart attitude was, I am not worthy that you would even come under my roof. He didn't rely on the, quote, good things that he had done in the community as merit to his worthiness. And do you know that there's nothing that we can do that will ever make us worthy of having Christ dwell in our heart? 
We're not worthy even to be saved. But because of God's great love, wherewith he loved us, it was, it was humility of heart that this man presented. And it's humility of heart that God is looking for, for a person to come unto him. Lord, I am not worthy. I know I'm in ju- under judgment, but I need you to save my soul. Thank you for dying for my sin, taking my place. I don't deserve that. In the sight of God, unworthiness felt is exactly what the Lord is looking for. Remember the publican in Luke chapter 18? The publican and the Pharisee? And for the sake of time, we're not going to go over there and read that. But in Luke 18, the Bible tells us that a publican and a Pharisee, they went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. Not like this publican. <clears throat> in fact, let me tell you all the good things that I do. I tithe of this and of that, and I fast twice in the week, and I do all of these things. Look how worthy I am. And the Bible says that the publican wouldn't even come nigh. He stood afar off, and he wouldn't lift up his eyes, and he smote on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See the difference? But what's the key? What Jesus said is the key. Jesus said that this man, the publican, went away justified rather than the other. Right? The point is, when we approach God, it's with an understanding of our sin and our guilt. It's with an earnestness. But it's also with a humble heart that says, I know I don't deserve it. That's the heart that God is looking for. But also notice that this centurion's petition was a believing petition. Look in verse 7. Verse 7 tells us, Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. His petition was a believing petition. He knew there there was power in the word of Jesus. Jesus didn't have to be present. He felt unworthy, but he asked anyway, believing that Jesus would and could. Amen? You know, we're not worthy of this salvation. But if we ask him with a repentant heart, sorry for my sin, and a believing heart, I know that Jesus Christ and His shed blood can wash away my sin. Lord, I know that You can save my soul. He's going to do exactly as He said He would do. God's Word cannot fail. Romans 10.9, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's a promise. And God's word cannot fail. So we see some things about the servant, his condition. We see some things about the centurion, that his petition was believing. His petition was humble. His petition was earnest. And it's a picture of how we need to come before the Lord. But thirdly, I want you to notice the Savior's response. 
Jesus' response. First of all, we note that it was prompt. Look at verse 6. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him. Now, what's the picture? The centurion had heard of Jesus, so he sends these elders of the Jews, beseeching that the Lord would come. They make their plea that he's worthy, and the Bible tells us that then Jesus went with them. Immediately. It was prompt. The response of Jesus Christ was prompt. When Jesus saw this man's faith, his response was immediate, as it always is, by the way, for the one who comes to him in faith. The one who humbly comes to him in repentance of sin receives immediate salvation. Did you know that? You don't work up into your salvation. You know, your response to the Lord over your sin is like is, is, is humble and repentant. Immediately, immediately, God comes and washes away that sin and makes you a child of God. Immediately, you go from darkness to light. Immediately, you go from an enemy to God to a son of God. You don't have to work up into it. What a tremendous thought that is. What a tremendous truth that is. That instantly you go from death to life. In a moment, you pass from one to the other. In a moment, you go from bondage of sin to freedom in Christ. The Savior's response to the repentant sinner is immediate. That's why the Bible says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Not only was his response prompt, but it was effectual. Notice back in Matthew 18, we were over there. Not 18, but 8. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 8. Notice this. Matthew 8 and verse 13. The Bible says, And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. If you look back in our text in Luke, Also, we find (coughs) in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Not only was the response of the Lord prompt, but it was full and effectual. The servant was completely healed. Jesus didn't need any special remedies or ointments for him, nor did he need any help from anybody else. His healing power was effectual, and so it is with salvation in the soul. You know that when Jesus saves you, he completely saves you. He completely takes you from darkness into light. He makes you a brand new person a new creation in Jesus Christ. Those that call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not mostly, but wholly. Amen? 
He went to Calvary's cross. He paid the debt of sin for every man all by himself with his own blood. And it's effectual for every sin. The sins of your past, the sins of your present, the sins of the future. For the sin of the whole world, it's effectual, the blood of Christ. Look in Hebrews chapter 1. We'll just read a few passages here. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, the Bible says, "...who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high." By Himself, He purged our sins. In Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 12, the Bible reads, "...neither..." by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You can't lose your salvation once you have it. And it's by His own blood. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all, verse 12, by the, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And the point that I'm making here is that when you come to the Lord with a humble heart and a repentant heart, understanding, listen, you're in immediate danger. And you call on the name of the Lord with a repentant heart immediately, God will wash away your sin and make you brand new, and it's forever. The whole person, it's not a transformation, it's a new creation. Amen. All men need to be saved. There's not one who doesn't have this sickness of soul. The invitation of the Lord here extends to all men. Come in faith and repentance, and He will heal your sin-sick heart. That's the message. And as I close this morning, let me just say one more thing, because this teaches us something else about Jesus here. Jesus gives us a great example of what grace and love looks like. He didn't care about the social boundaries that were in play. We didn't talk much about this. But this man that Jesus does this miracle on is a Gentile. <clears throat> he started heading for the house of a Gentile in the midst of a bunch of Jews. But Jesus didn't care. He didn't pay attention to the social boundaries of the day. The centurion was a Roman soldier. He was an enemy of Israel. But Jesus went to help him anyway. The centurion would have been an outsider, not welcomed by Israel. He would have been a stranger to the grace of God, according to the Jews. But Jesus treated him with grace and compassion. The man was unworthy. But Jesus doesn't work on the basis of merit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, 
because I have no merit of my own. Jesus doesn't care who you are or what you've done or where you've been. He doesn't care what color you are. He doesn't care how much money you have. He doesn't care if you grew up in church or if you live on the street. He doesn't care if you smoke, drink, cuss, addicted to drugs. He doesn't care. His love for you is the same. What he cares about is, do you understand your sin-sick condition before God? And will you come with a repentant heart? You know, I am a pastor of this church. <clears throat> I preach, I teach throughout the week. Sometimes I'll visit the sick. Sometimes I'll reach out to the hopeless. Sometimes I have to give comfort to a grieving person. Sometimes I tell others about Jesus Christ. But you know all those things don't make me more deserving of His goodness than the bum who's walking down South Cushman Street. Do you know why? Because God doesn't operate that way. Why did Jesus do good to his enemies? Why does Jesus love those who hate him? Why can he bless those who curse him? How can he love people when he'll get nothing in return? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus himself is good. Amen? Jesus is good. He healed this centurion's servant not because the man was worthy, but because Jesus himself is inherently good. This man happened to be a pretty good guy in the eyes of the community. But think of all the others in scriptures who weren't good guys and how Jesus still saved their soul. The point is this. Today, you might find yourself in the position of the centurion. You have some problem that's beyond your ability to handle. You've done everything you know to do, and now you're only left with the hopeless, helpless feeling that comes from having nowhere else to turn. The answer, friend, is always Jesus Christ. Always. Whether you're lost today, you need Him as your Savior. Whether you're a child of God today and you find yourself feeling hopeless at times, the answer is Jesus Christ. And what you need to do, just like this man did, you need to go to Him for help. Forget making bargains with God. Just come to God with a humble heart in recognition of what your need is. Admit to him that you can't handle a problem. Admit to him that he alone is able to handle the problem. And while you're not worthy of his goodness, you appeal to him on the basis of his goodness. Amen.
Put your faith in Him today. As God is speaking to your heart today, respond. Respond even now. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, pray that you'd use your word now in our hearts. <clears throat> that there would be a humble response to you. May your will be done, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.